Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. In early November 1956, a surprise attack on Egypt saw the Israelis advance deep into the Sinai Desert, while British and French forces occupied the banks of the all-important Suez Canal. Chaos erupted at the United Nations as countries as small as Albania and as large as the United States denounced the aggressive actions of the Anglo-French-Israeli alliance. Stepping up on the morning of 2nd November 1956 in front of the entire United Nations General Assembly was the Canadian athlete-turned-diplomat Lester B. Pearson. Pearson put forward a novel idea, a United Nations peacekeeping force. The ensuing UN Emergency Force, UNEF or UNEF, would become the model for peacekeeping in the 20th century, and Pearson would not only give Canada a distinct foreign policy for the remaining decades of that century, but he would win the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts. This is Season 6, Episode 6, Whose Side Are You On Anyways? The Canadian Response to the Suez Crisis. Today's book recommendation is called Pearson's Peacekeepers, Canada and the United Nations Emergency Force, 1956 to 1967. This is written by Michael Carroll, and it was published by UBC Press in 2009 and is an excellent, well-researched, well-written account of the events surrounding the Suez Crisis and Pearson's call to peacekeeping. So... Before we dive into the Canadian involvement in the Suez Crisis, it is important to establish the history of the canal itself. The Suez Canal first opened in 1869 and was an important waterway connecting the Mediterranean with the Red Sea, basically providing a shorter transportation route to connect parts of the Middle East, India, and even Asia with Europe. 
Now, the canal was built by a French company, but half of the shares in the canal were owned by the Khedive of Egypt, Ismail Pasha. The Khedive was basically the senior governing official in Egypt as part of the broader Ottoman Empire. Now, in 1875, the Khedive's debts forced him to sell his shares, and the British government was more than happy to gobble them up for four million pounds. This meant that the controlling shares of the canal went from the Egyptian political elite to the British. Now, the British controlled a waterway that could connect them not just to India, the jewel in the British imperial crown, but even to their far-flung Pacific territories, including the domains of Australia and New Zealand. This had now become one of the most important waterways in all of the British Empire. In 1882, trouble within the Ottoman Empire resulted in the British dispatching a military force to Egypt, ostensibly to protect the canal. However, what this really did was bring Egypt into the British imperial sphere of influence. The British took this even one step further in 1914 when they declared Egypt a British protectorate in response to the Ottoman Empire's declaration of war against Great Britain. By 1918, Britain was now a major player in the Middle East, gaining mandate control over Iraq, Transjordan, and Palestine while still controlling Egypt. Now, even though Egypt became an independent state in name in 1922, it was still heavily influenced by the British. In fact, in 1936, the British even received permission from the Egyptian king Farouk I to maintain a permanent garrison in the canal zone, as well as an entire naval fleet at the port city of Alexandria. Now, not all Egyptians welcomed the presence of the British. Egyptian nationalists bridled at what was seen as Egypt's status as a puppet state of the British Empire, and tension over Jewish immigration into Palestine, which was, of course, a British mandate at the time, further antagonized anti-British elements in Egypt. After World War II, this issue escalated rapidly and the British eventually pulled out of Palestine in 1947, allowing for the creation of the State of Israel. At the same time, Britain had also withdrawn from the Indian continent, leading to the creation of the states of Pakistan and India. Thus, for many, it seemed like the late 1940s began ushering in the age of Britain's withdrawal from empire. Yet... This withdrawal created some anxiety amongst the British political ruling class. Many saw the remnants of their empire as the only way to ensure prestige and influence in a world that was coming to be dominated by the superpowers of the USA and the USSR. At the same time, there were legitimate fears in Britain about the growing Soviet influence in the Middle East. So, combine anxiety over the loss of empire 
with fears of the spread of communism, and you basically have the underlying issues driving Britain's eventual role in the Suez Crisis. Now, Egypt, by the early 1950s, had undergone dramatic change when a revolution toppled King Farouk and established a new government, eventually led by the charismatic colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser. Nasser was, in fact, able to negotiate a British withdrawal from the Canal Zone. The agreement stated that the canal would be handed over to Egypt in 1968, effectively giving Britain ample time to prepare to lose this important waterway. While the British were not necessarily enthusiastic Nasser supporters, it seemed like there would be a relatively cordial relationship with this agreement. Yet, Nasser's actions in the mid-1950s antagonized the British to the point of intervention. You see, Nasser wanted weapons specifically because he felt that the young state of Israel posed a serious challenge to both Egypt and the broader Arabic world. Now, neither the British nor the Americans were willing to sell him weapons, so Nasser turned to the Soviets, and this was strike one. In January 1956, Nasser then declared a new constitution with himself president of a new one-party political system. This was strike two. Finally, in order to pay for a massive hydroelectric project, Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal after the Americans refused to provide money for the project. Nasser's thinking was that the Suez Canal would thus help finance this massive dam. And that was strike three. British Prime Minister Anthony Eden saw in Nasser the new Hitler, a man who pushed his agenda and threatened war with no end in sight. Eden armed with the ghost of Hitler from the Second World War, authorized secret negotiations with the French and the Israelis to strike the Egyptians, and strike they did. On the 29th of October, 1956, this alliance launched their attack, and the British sent in their soldiers to, quote-unquote, protect the canal. But nobody was deceived by this. It was clear that the British had helped orchestrate an attack to take back the canal, and nobody was happy with the British. And this unhappiness was made very clear in the United Nations. Folks, before I go on, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely exclusively on your donations to survive. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, for instance, if you want to donate five bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program as well on our Facebook page, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. And thank you 
to all who have donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to the regularly scheduled program. The United Nations had been in existence since the end of the Second World War. It was intended to be a body for peaceful diplomacy, but had already been witness to numerous conflicts, including the Arab-Israeli conflict of the late 1940s and the Korean War in the early 1950s. Now, it was up in arms over this unprovoked attack on Egypt. By November, the Israelis were deep into the Sinai Desert, while French and British forces were on the east bank of the Suez Canal. It seemed like there would be no solution, yet the United Nations faced a problem. Generally, it was the Security Council which would vote on a UN action. However, the French and British were both members of that Security Council. Any attempt to censure the invasion would be obviously blocked by the Anglo-French alliance. However, back in 1950, during the first year of the Korean War, a United States-backed resolution had been passed, which allowed for the General Assembly to decide on United Nations action if the Security Council was at an impasse between its members. Now, this resolution was aimed at, of course, the Soviet Union blocking any UN action, and it now was going to be used against the British and the French. Basically, despite the fact that the British and the French were blocking any attempt at a UN resolution to the conflict, the General Assembly now had the right to decide. You see, the General Assembly was far more sympathetic to the Egyptians and the British and French found themselves heavily outnumbered in terms of allies who would support them. It was thus in early November, as the General Assembly prepared to pass a resolution requesting the withdrawal of the Anglo-French-Israeli forces, that the Canadian Minister for External Affairs, Lester B. Pearson, proposed a radical new idea. A United Nations military force to step in, not to go and fight, but to enforce peace in the region. So who was Lester B. Pearson? Well, Lester Bowles Pearson was born in Ontario in 1897 in what was then the outskirts of Toronto, but now, of course, would be part of Toronto proper. He eventually ended up at the University of Toronto, where he studied history, and proved to be an exceptional athlete, playing hockey, baseball, and lacrosse. He later taught in the history department at U of T, and even coached U of T's football and hockey teams. The pursuit of his degree was interrupted by the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, and Pearson stepped away from his studies and volunteered to serve, first with the Canadian Army Medical Corps, and later with the Royal Flying Corps. After the war, Pearson completed his BA at the U of T and eventually studied at Oxford, where he received a second degree. In 1927, armed with his spate of history degrees, he was hired by the Department of External Affairs. By the 1940s, Pearson had risen through the ranks and was a member of the Canadian delegation helping to establish the first-ever United Nations, 
1946, in fact, he almost became the first ever Secretary General of the UN, but this appointment was vetoed by the Soviet Union. However, under Prime Minister Mackenzie King, Pearson was made Secretary of State External Affairs, and he continued this role under King's successor, Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent. So it was Pearson, as Canada's top diplomat, who, in early November 1956, put forward the idea of a UN intervention in the Middle East. It should be pointed out that this would not be the first time the UN had stepped into a conflict zone. There had been a UN body observing the temporary peace between Israel and her Arab neighbors in 1948 and 1949, though this was made up primarily of civilian observers. And of course, the intervention in Korea during the Korean War was a United Nations mission, though heavily American, of course, and certainly not meant as a peacekeeping force. What was novel about this mission was that a military force would be sent to enforce the peace and keep the two sides from engaging in further violence. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. However, like any United Nations endeavor, this one was chock full of diplomatic layers. One of the countries that was most irate with the British happened to be the United States. And for Canada, it was in their diplomatic interest to have their two closest allies, Great Britain and the U.S., on good terms. Canada was uniquely positioned to bring about an accord between the former and current superpower. At the same time, though, Canada was also very concerned about the potential for any conflict to escalate into a Soviet-American conflict, one that could potentially escalate even further into nuclear war. Now, while today we might scoff at the idea that the Suez crisis could have led to such an outbreak, in the tense days of the 1950s, this seemed a very real possibility. As well, for NATO members, including Great Britain, the U.S., and Canada, it was imperative that the Soviet Union be prevented from dispatching any troops to help a beleaguered Egypt, thus giving the Soviet Union a foothold in the Middle East. Now, Pearson's proposal, when it went in front of the General Assembly, was accepted with wide acclaim, and the United Nations Emergency Force was dispatched in December. What's interesting, though, is that there were almost no Canadians amongst the original UNEF force. You see, to Egypt, Canada was not seen as some neutral country. And despite this being a Canadian initiative, Egypt made it clear it would not accept Canadian soldiers in the force itself. Thus, the initial UNEF force, nearly 3,200 strong, was made up of countries either associated with Egypt 
or from non-aligned nations. Half of the force was from India and Yugoslavia, while other soldiers included Colombians, Swedes, Norwegians, Danes, and Finns. Now, eventually, 1,200 Canadians would arrive and serve with UNEF, including reconnaissance teams, a signal and transport squadron, some infantry in a training capacity, as well as an air transport unit. Interestingly, even though no Canadian soldiers were initially allowed to be part of UNEF, the commander of the force was a Canadian, World War II Commander General E.L.M. Burns. Now, Burns was a controversial choice in a few ways. His time as commander of 1st Canadian Corps during the Second World War saw him effectively lose his job by early 1944. Despite this, post-war he had continued in the military working directly with the United Nations. His appointment as commander of UNEF, however, was not supported by Israel. Burns, you see, had run afoul of the Israelis due to his perceived anti-Israeli stance while he was the commander of the UN Truce Supervision Organization back in 1949 dealing with the Arab-Israeli conflict. So he was not that popular within the Canadian military, he was not that popular with the Israelis themselves, thus he was perfect for the Egyptians to accept him as the commander of UNEF. With no Canadian combatants in UNEF and the disliked Burns as the leader, Egypt thus agreed to a UN intervention. UNEF was deployed as a buffer between Israel and Egypt, and its primary objective was to act as an anti-raid and anti-infiltration screen between the two sides. It's interesting that at this point, while it was a Canadian initiative, by the time the force deployed in December, it was largely out of Canadian hands, being run primarily by the Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld, the man who beat out Pearson for the position. In the end, UNEF achieved its immediate objective. It stopped the fighting. It prevented any escalation towards a Soviet-American conflict. Though, it's worth pointing out that both the Soviets and the Americans were unusually on the same side in their denunciation of the Anglo-French-Israeli attack. The British and the French were allowed to withdraw, effectively saving face, and the Suez Canal was opened up to international shipping. For his efforts, Lester B. Pearson would win the 1957 Nobel Peace Prize. Canada suddenly found itself with a foreign policy that its people and its politicians were eager to embrace, a leading peacekeeping nation. For years to come, UNEF became the core template for further UN peacekeeping operations. Yet, in the long term, UNEF was simply a band-aid on a bullet wound. It did not contribute to any lasting peace in the region. In fact, when, in 1967, just before Egypt was to launch an attack against Israel, the Egyptians simply ordered the UN force to withdraw completely, which it did. UNEF also highlighted issues with peacekeeping that would continue to plague peacekeeping operations going forward, and that was confusing and often contradictory objectives to maintain peace 
without being given the appropriate tools or permissions or mandates to enforce it in any realistic way. Nonetheless, for decades to come, Pearson's Nobel Prize, United Nations Emergency Force, and peacekeeping generally would become accepted as a uniquely Canadian contribution to a fraught and tense 20th century. The peacekeeping myth that so dominated Canadian thinking for the second half of the 20th century was born in the sands of Egypt, amongst the crumbling of empires, the rising of new nations, and the hostile world that characterized the Cold War. Peacekeeping was optimistically thought to be the way forward in this new nuclear age, and Canada was poised to lead it. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.